Welcome to another episode of Embracing Differences with me, Nipan Anand. A podcast aimed at engaging with different viewpoints and perspectives about how we as human beings learn, unlearn, recognize risk, tackle risk, and become culturally sensitive. Talking of which, we have a three days workshop coming up in London from the 21st to 23rd of February on culture and risk intelligence. If you're wondering what is the connection between culture and risk intelligence, my answer is this. How can we recognize risk in our everyday life by stepping into another culture? How much do we tend to normalize and assume as we go about making sense of the world around us until we meet someone from another culture who sees things completely different to us? In those moments, what do we do? Do we judge them? Do we control them? Do we evaluate their culture, their rituals, habits, language, behaviors, ethics, and narratives from our point of view, or do we genuinely make an attempt to understand their culture from their own point of view? That takes confronting our own assumptions and expanding our worldview, and that is what makes us culturally sensitive and risk intelligent. If you want to hear more, you can go on our website novellas.solutions slash events and you'll find all the details on the event page including a detailed brochure of what we will cover in this workshop. Now, on to this podcast. You've heard Craig Smith, the internationally acclaimed lawyer on health and safety who lives in Australia, um, most famous for his book Paper Safe. He and I did a recent podcast just a few weeks ago where I asked Greg about how far the industry has onboarded his wisdom about paper safety. The discussion ended in a very interesting place where we both felt the need to articulate a very basic question. What is safety? Now it sounds like a very simple question, but there are so many echelons, there are so many threads to the idea of safety that we never come to a shared understanding. Greg and I in this podcast challenge this very current view on safety from a legal operational, but also from a holistic perspective. Consider, for example, in the maritime industry, safety really is all about finger injuries or personal injuries. But what about when ships go aground? Is the airline industry really safe because planes don't fall off from the sky? Or could there be other issues, for example, with baggage handling, or on the ground staff. But I suppose there is a much bigger question here, which is this. How do we see safety? Zero accidents? Yes. Zero reliability issues? Yes. Zero quality issues? Yes. And zero customer complaints? Sure. But what about the actual well-being of people who are creating all these zero outcomes? I personally see a very painful trajectory that comes from this never-ending quest for zero, be it safety, reliability, customer service, or whatever. It's the well-being of people who are at the receiving end of producing these zero targets. You can call it mental health and psychological safety, which should be integral aspects of safety. But I hope you will question your worldview about what safety is after listening to this conversation 
And as usual, I would love to hear your thoughts. Greg, you, you touched upon it briefly, and I thought that should be a separate topic for discussion. But I think it's a fascinating thing to talk about. What really is safety? Mm. You know, we have the orthodox view, and we have the emerging concepts, and we have all sort of confusion around what safety really means. I have lost interest in safety completely, but I think it would be a good place to begin to see what is your view on what is safety? I'm, I'm, I'm struggling my way through this at the moment because I'm trying to write a book on proving safety. And so the question is, what is it that we're trying to prove? What's, what, are, what is that? So, um, and it's interesting because, um, so if I go back to the start of the, the thought process, I guess. Um, so I deal primarily with safety from a legal point of view and the law doesn't define safety in the legislation and it doesn't say you have to have a safe workplace. What it says is you've got to do everything reasonably practicable to ensure the health and safety of people and that they're not exposed to hazards. So that's fine. Um, and then, then we run into this difficult conversation which says, well, and it's really counterintuitive that we can't, def we can't say our organisation is safe because we haven't had an accident. Um, and I, yes, I understand where that comes from. And so we've seen these slogans that says things like, Safety is not the absence of negatives, it's the presence of positives, or safety is not the absence of accidents, it's the presence of capacities. A couple of the ones that I've seen. Um, except that if you think you've got capacities and positives and you end up killing two people, are you safe? It's an interesting question. At the same time, if if you have a, a fatality in your workplace and you're prosecuted and you're found not guilty and you're found that you've done everything reasonably practicable, which happens, it's legitimate, um, are you safe in those circumstances? I don't know what it looks like. Um, and and safe is, is very subjective. Um, you know, we've all had that experience where we've been a passenger in a car um, and it's been... I mean, we were in South Korea recently and we are going from the airport to, to our hotel and this taxi driver was doing 140 in an 80k zone. I didn't, feel, I didn't feel safe. The driver was perfectly comfortable and perfectly safe. So we, we get... There's lots of different ways um, to look at it. I think in that sense... Um, Safety is your archetypal wicked problem. And defining the, the way you define, typically the way you define the problem, and I think, I think this works a couple of different ways in safety in particular, but as a wicked problem, the way you define the problem um, determines your solution for it. There's no one solution. No. So if, you, you know, if, you, if you're going to build a bridge, there is one, there's, you know, the, the, the mathematics and the engineering rules don't change. Safety, depending on how you define the problem, depends on how you manage it. So if, if people are the problem, then the way you manage safety looks a bit different than if you view people being a solution. But I think what we're seeing at the moment in safety is that people's um, weddedness to their solutions is driving the definition of the problem. So, you know, if, if, if I have a strong belief in behavioural-based safety, that's how I define what safety is. If I... If I 
you know, more down the safety differently path. Um, you know, we're seeing lots of um, lots of organisations defining safety around human and operational performance and those sorts of things. That shapes what you th the, the, your your view of how to solve it. Often, your your commercial interest in a solution may very often define what you think the problem of of safety is. Um, I think as a matter of intuition, safety has got to have something to do with freedom from harm. I, I think it has. If I'm, if, if the more exposed I am to harm, the less safe I, I am. Yes. Can I offer a view? I'm yeah. Yeah. Fascinated. Yeah. So yes, freedom from harm. You're, you're right, Greg. But what kind of freedom from harm? Because mm. you could have, you could, I mean, we have a very interesting situation in, in the, in the oil, oil and gas world, in the maritime world and so on, that people are dying, people are committing suicides, people are, people are becoming overly stressed as a result of accident, how they're investigated, yes. yep. as a result yep. of how, how uh, audits, audits are performed, yep. as a result of how inspectors come across so arrogant sometimes, mm. not all of them. No, no. Um, so, yes, you know, you may not have physical injuries, you may not have oil spills, you may not have, have, have um, uh, any sort of non-compliance, but what about, what about this aspect yeah. of risk and safety, which is not talked about at all? No, it's curious, isn't it? So we were talking on the drive last night that we had an inquiry into high suicide rates in the fly-in, fly-out mining industry. And one of, the, one of the pieces of evidence in that inquiry was a lifeline report, um, and that's a suicide helpline. And based on their reviews, one of the biggest contributors to mental stress in the mining environment are actually health and safety rules. So, yeah, you're right. But, but, um, in this um, obsessive search to prevent physical harm, what other harms are we doing on, on the way through? I think that's... That's a really important issue, um, and you know, if I if I terminate a, a worker's employment in the name of safety, what have I done to that person and their family, and what have I done to the co-workers of that person? That you know, have I have I improved their safety? Have I compromised it, um, or is is institutional safety? Does that override the safety of individuals? That it's a messy political, social power um, um, power structure question where where safety sits, who gets to decide what is safe, what is not safe. Um, but interestingly, none of that. It seems to me, at least, that none of that is factored into the, the structures we have for measuring safety. So all our lead and lag indicators, they don't, they don't define what safety is. So if, if we're saying um, that one of the measures of safety that we have, a lead indicator, is close out of corrective actions. Okay. What's that contributing? In terms of your overall idea of what safety looks like, what's that contributing to? Um, and who who bears, again, to your point, who bears the brunt of that? 
So you know, you're an operational manager, divisional manager. Um, you're coming up to the end of the month. You've got action items that are not closed out, that are unlikely to be closed out because you haven't got the resources to do it, but you know that the board's going to look at that number and if your scorecard's orange instead of green, so what do you do? You just mark them all knowing that they're not. What does that do to your mental health and well-being? What does it do to the physical state of the workplace? Um, it's, I think it's one of the really interesting conversations. Uh, and I think in part, and you, I, I think you can get a bit too lost in the complexity sometimes, but I think in part the, comple the complexity around that question of what is safety um, continues to drive reliance on injury rate data as a measure of safety. Because again, intuitively, for most organisations, if we are not having accidents, we must be safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, I don't think we can discount the power of that argument too easily, I think. Um, and it, but we know, we, we just know all the history is there of organisations that are objectively safe based on injury rates you, time and time and time again and you have a catastrophic event. Um, and so A, prima facie you're not safe because you've had this catastrophic event, but B, the inquiry reveals that everything that sat behind that catastrophic event was inadequate anyway. Yeah. So the yeah. question of what is safe is a really yeah, and, problematic and, one. And you know, this is where I find Rob's work very, very powerful. Mm. Because um, yesterday, for example, just leaving Canberra, I had a, had a meeting with a woman and she told me a fascinating story about how often seafarers from the third world, for example, from, from Philippines, from India, have to tolerate so much. Mm -hmm. Cruise ships particularly, where you are expected to, you know, you know you're sexually harassed, mm. you're bullied. Yep. And the client comes first, of course. Yes. You cannot challenge uh, yes. uh, any sort of... Uh, there is no power balance at all. No. So you end up in a very tricky situation where a lot of people feel bullied, harassed, and all sort of things. How do you, how do you tackle that issue? Because clearly that is a safety issue, right? Mm. Clearly. I mean, you can give it any name, mental health. You can call it bullying, yeah, harassment. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. at the end of it... There is no safety. It's, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I, you, you think about it, going on the bridge of a ship, taking the ship out, uh, you know, in, in, in busy waters mm. after being sexually harassed mm. or bullied. Mm. Uh, Your mind's not on the job at all. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but we, we do do that. We do that. Conditional is not the right word, but we, we frame... The way we frame safety is, is different in my view. Um, so we know, for example, in industries like um, the airline industry and the rail industry, when they talk about safe operating, it's planes don't crash and trains don't crash. Um, the fact that you have baggage handlers suffering musculoskeletal issues all the time um, doesn't get accounted for. So you know, when you say Qantas is the safest airline in the world, it's the airline that has had the least number of crashes. Is that the same as saying it is the safest? I don't know. You know Neither do I, no. Um, I understand. Yeah. Look, look, 
if, if I'm a passenger of Qantas, what am I more interested in? Yeah. The plane flying and yeah. landing, right? I'm not turning my mind particularly to the, the state of the baggage handlers. Um, it's a bit like what gets measured gets managed. Yeah. 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 Although or, it's a very... Uh, yeah, that's, that's not even a measurement question, is it? That's a real public What gets focused upon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what gets focused on. Yeah. So again, at the moment, we have this... Um, I've got, you know, I'll probably really uh, say this inelegantly, but in the last two years in Australia, the focus on psychosocial risk has just been enormous. Um, and I'm really curious to understand, and it probably won't wash through any numbers for a while, but what does that mean in terms of physical safety? Is, is there a risk that we've actually got less physically safe workplaces now because of... I think, I think it has to mean that. Organisations don't have this untapped or uh, this infinite bucket of focus and energy. So if I'm focusing on something, I'm not focusing on something else. It, Again, we, we mentioned in the last chat that yeah, the, I mean, the criticality issue is Absolutely. You know, there was a time when process safety took up a lot of energy mm. and a lot of resources and organisation. Mm. The new movement we are seeing, seeing is around the line of social, so yeah. psychosocial risks. Yeah. But I think that holistic view on safety is by and large missing. That's how I see it. Yeah. And, but I kind of... You know, if, if, I'm the, if I'm the chief executive officer or the chairman of the board of um, of a Qantas um, or, or of a, a rail company or a high hazard operation, my number one priority and focus is to keep the planes in the air, the trains on the tracks and the hydrocarbons in the pipe. And if some individuals get damaged along the way, the organisation will survive that. The organisation won't survive planes dropping out of the sky. So, but isn't that an assumption that uh, all that would happen only because uh, the document has been complied with? My problem is that if you situate it within the within the within the context of social cycle, mm. uh, psychosocial risks, for yep. example, isn't that as important as anything else to to keep the planes flying and the ships moving? Um, I, look, I think it probably is, um, and I think historically that has been looked at through the lens of. Um, Fatigue, in particular, indeed, not, not the, not the more compounding effects around it. Um, yeah. I mean, this and this is this is where the whole notion of critical risks gets very interesting, Greg. Because what is a critical risk at the end of it? You know, how do you, yes, you know, just there's some very clear definitions around the consequence and likelihood of something yeah, sure. going wrong. Sure, and I agree with that. I have no mm. problems with that. Yeah. But a system is only as good as the people's state of mind who are managing it yep. at the time of the... the yep. And I think that's... And that cannot happen in isolation from equipment and systems and so on. We have to take things in more totality. Uh, and, and it's interesting that, you know, with this new standard of so, psychosocial risk, for example, you will have a heightened awareness of this issue. But you end up in the same situation where you give the regulator a checklist, yep. but no appreciation for what it actually feels and means when you go on the site and do a so-called investigation, yeah. audit or an inspection. Yeah. Um, so here's a question for you then, particularly in larger organisations, is there, I, I think there is, but is, is there a limit 
to an organisation's capacity to actually take account of all these considerations? That's a really good question. Um, and, and, and you know, Greg, uh, I, have a, I have a slightly different view on this. I think we need to turn this question, reframe this question a little bit because let's face it this way, there are people who have good intentions and there are people who will not have some yeah. good, you know, they're, they're driven by other things. Yeah. I think this question has to be raised at the level of individuals, not organizations. I think you have, to, and then from individuals, you, when you, so for, for example, when you go into an organization, you talk to people and you work out by, through those one-to-one -one conversations, yep. who are the people who actually care for these things? And I think from there, you spread it at the level of the culture of the organization. I think I don't know of another way of doing it. You start small, you identify mm. pockets within the organization, and then you create the right culture, the right language, the right tone, the right kind of leadership. You cannot take this at the level of society or regulation. It's, it's, no. it's very difficult to achieve that. The, part of the problem you have there is, and particularly we're dealing with this in Western Australia at the moment, is that often the regulations stymie those sorts of efforts. Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. But, but again, the, uh, in, you know, we talked about this in the same way that organisations are very reluctant to let go of process um, to free up the sort of thing that you're talking about. Societies are very reluctant to let go of regulation of things that they consider to be risky. Um, I mean, we've had this enormous shift in safety regulation in Australia over the last few years, built predominantly on retributive justice. Mm. So this idea that somebody gets hurt in the workplace, somebody has to be held to account and severely held to account. Once you've created that environment, um, the number of organisations that are willing to adopt the kind of approach that you're talking about um, is really restricted. And I think we're seeing a much stronger... So as, as you impose retributive justice at a social regulatory level, that's what you see in organisations. More, more rules, more compliance, more punishment, more discipline, more termination, and ironically, um, it's it's you, you, you're creating this this system of more punishment with a view to improving psychosocial health, uh, which it I, really yeah, seems counterintuitive. Can I offer a thought here? Um, I think um, I think we um, so my my view is that first of all, this idea that there is no some in, society cannot progress through the idea of retributive justice is I think stretched too far. Mm -hmm. uh, that you know you can blame or you can learn and, and there is no such thing like blame culture. Yep. It's a bit too naive I think. I, I think there is a middle ground there. Absolutely. Yeah. More than middle ground, I think one needs to accept from a cultural point of view that there is no escape from blame. Mm. You know, it happens at the level of family, it happens at the level of, um, of an individual, yep. it happens at the level of organization. There is no going no no road running away from that and i think it has its place you know i am so when there is a there an accident there will be somebody to blame we have not evolved through the christian history and the hindu history yeah. for that matter 
uh, that we, we will ever create a blame-free society. But I think in the day-to-day -day running of the organization, which is looking at things in a more prospective sense rather than reactive yeah. and, and reactionary sense, I think we can create a lot of positive energy. We can come to a more mature stage mm. to say, actually, we can, we can make some changes. You know, we, we, we can go on board a ship, we can do an audit, we can go an investigation, and we can actually listen to people. Yeah, oh yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yes. Uh, but making, uh, making it, make no mistakes, Greg, that I make no mistakes at all, that when there is a large-scale catastrophe, there is a, there's, a, there's an accident, there's an incident, there will be somebody to be blamed. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, yes, we know. And we, we have hard times with this contemporary thoughts coming to, to accept this idea. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a little bit. So, so my point is, so just to answer your question, I think there is, there is room for both. There is room for both. Mm. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, a lot of, for example, I told you, what is the point in pushing that captain to the limits that we don't want any inspections yeah. on the ship? that you have pushed him to the point that he has jumped from the ship, yeah. that we don't want any defects. Or, yeah. or, I think that's a little bit going yep. completely out of balance. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and we do see, and I, I think sometimes the, the overreactions are the bit that, that are quite difficult. So again, we had, a, um, we had an inquiry into sexual misconduct in the mining industry in WA. And one of the recommendations that came out of it was to create it was literally called a blacklist of people accused of conduct. So if they're accused of conduct, they go onto this blacklist, so if they leave the site, they can't be employed on another site. Now that really strikes me as um, a complete denial of any level of, of fairness and justice Absolutely. to anybody in those yeah. circumstances. Uh, but again, this is one of those really socially difficult conversations and you know, as a, a privileged white male, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable dipping my toe into this water. So, you know, I've got... Oh, no, I won't say that, but, you know, the, the, the prevailing view is that if a woman says she's been sexually assaulted, we need to believe her. And I, I absolutely agree with that. We do. Um, but, where's, but there's a trade-off there. If, if that's the trade-off, then the justice for those people is at... You have to compromise. I think you have to compromise the justice of other people, or the rights of other people. And there's net, and these things are never completely fair one way or the other. Um, but, but that's a, again, that's another wicked problem. Indeed. And as soon as you start diving into these wicked problems, you realise the complexity of what you're trying to deal with. So, from a, a legal perspective, the solution is actually really simple. So legal regulation is very simple and straightforward. Understand the activities in your business identify the hazards, the things that can cause harm, identify the risks, put in place controls, implement and enforce the controls and do a system of review. That's a, me a linear, mechanistic, very straightforward. But as soon as, as soon as you peel away the surface of that, as we've talked about, and you say, well, let's start with identifying hazards. Okay. What if your hazards are in competition with each other? What if your your hazard to prevent physical harm is in competition with the things that cause psychosocial harm. Where's the trade-off there? Because you don't, you don't get the trade-off option. So if somebody's lost a hand in a piece of machinery and the regulator's looking at it, they're not looking at it from the context of saying, 
oh, the, part of the contributor to that was the effort you're putting into managing psychosocial harm. And similarly, if somebody um, has um, suffers a psychological in injury due to disciplinary type processes, you don't get to trade that off and say, we're trying to ensure the physical harm of our people. Yeah. There's lots of compromise. It is, and, and, and Greg, I think uh, what you're saying is making so much sense to me. The only thing I would say is that uh, there has to be a recognition that the loss of hand in this situation is partly the result of me mechanical failures, yeah. but it's also partly the result of the state of mind of the person. And unless we look at it in a, in a more prospective sense to say, in a more holistic I'll sense to say yeah. that you know we need to address both. So no inspection should be done, no investigation should be done, no audit should be done to actually uh, make a traumatized person more traumatized well, is, is, I think it's, it's, it's a good place to begin. Well, take, take this framework then. Um, I, I have been told point, point blank by the regulator in two separate meetings involving matters where we have a person who is um, absent from work due to psychosocial reasons, okay? Um, workplace stress, bullying, harassment. Two separate cases. And we've been told by the regulator that because it's now in, because they've now very much put their arms around it as a health and safety regulator, we have to investigate these things as health and safety matters irrespective of the wishes of the complainant. So you're taking a traumatised person and, and, and we've already touched on this, but we know that there are lots of deficiencies in the way that organisations investigate safety incidents. Correct. Um, and we know that I mean, lots, of, lots, of, lots of people don't even receive basic training in incident investigation, no, much, much no. less the nuanced how do I deal with a traumatised person Correct. type Correct. issue. Um, so again, that's just another example in my view of how trying to do the right thing for safety can actually make safety worse. Um, and there's no, there's no easy or neat no, there isn't. answer no, to it. No. Um, and I think this is, again, goes to the essence of the, the work I'm doing now in terms of saying, if you're trying to prove safety, what is it that you're trying to demonstrate? And what are the trade-offs associated in that conversation? Great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yes. What did you think listening to that conversation with Greg? For me, I'm not convinced that the emerging views on safety have approached this issue in a more holistic sense. Yes, we do have band-aid approaches like picking up concept around mental health or psychological safety, but these are by far piecemeal approaches and a desperate need to connect between different concepts without having a more holistic sense of the problem which is going back to a very rudimentary question, which what is safety? Anyway, it's not important what I think. What is important is what you think about this issue. I'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is available on several channels, um, Anchor, uh, Spotify, um, Google Podcast, and Podbean. It is also available on our YouTube channel, Team Novellus. And obviously, you can also find this podcast 
with complete transcript and a lot of further reading on our website novellas.solutions forward slash knowledge space where you will find not just this podcast but many other interesting podcasts with leading experts from around the world. Thank you and have a wonderful day.